Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Mr. Williams, John Williams. He's the CTO of Ampliance, a company that helps power digital-first brands and retailers with the freedom to do more. Hmm, sounds interesting, right? So let's not delay. Let's get John into the space to share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, John. Welcome to CTO Confessions. Hi, it's great to be here. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm John Williams. I'm the CTO at Ampliance. Uh, we're a UK-based company, but we are global in terms of our reach and our customers. And we deliver basically a headless experience management system for retail and e-commerce. Wow. That sounds really intriguing, headless. So coming on to the company that you're working for now, Ampliance, what's the problem they're solving in the market? What's what's the why? Yeah. So we, well, I've worked in uh, with content management for a very long time myself and, and my and my friend, my CEO, James, uh, and particularly around the e-commerce space. And it's, I mean, for a while, content management hadn't really innovated in about a decade, right? It's the pretty much the same, uh, but the problem space have evolved. So it went from, uh, you know, just delivering to a single screen on the desktop to de- uh, delivering to mobile, to delivering to native apps, to delivering to all sorts of channels, all sorts of devices, all sorts of contexts uh, with a massive focus on personalization. And if you try to do that with blobs of HTML being passed around the internet, it's really difficult to manage, right? You're pretty much screen scraping at that point. Uh, so what we've done in, a, in some respects is turn content into data. We've turned content into a JSON object that, that can be served at a super high performance, super scale, uh, that can then be hydrated into any UI. And as a part of that, we also do uh, all the image side of the problem. So a big thing with retail and e-commerce is you can't sell anything without an image. Yeah. Uh, and images are important. So we basically can take in huge master assets, uh, any size, and then transform them in, on the fly into any shape, size, form that you want. So thumbnail, crop them, layer them, add additional layers of text, but transcode them completely into different images. Right. Excellent. That sounds sounds very dynamic. Is that, what kind of uh, transactions and and, uh, and generation of these images we're we talking about? What's the quantity? Uh, well, we have numbers up to 124 billion images in a month. During Black Friday, we did we were doing something like 274,000 requests per second. I think it was. <gasps> wow. I mean, that's that's, that's a scaling <laughs> challenge. I mean, that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. In the, uh, and we're kind of a multi-tenanted SaaS cloud. So we, we are part of what we call the Mac Alliance. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's about microservices, APIs, cloud native, headless, right? It's all of those terms joined together. It's yeah. an ethos of a group of companies together. And part of that is about being multi-tenanted. It's not just delivering to, an, like, give someone a CD and they'll go and install it and, 
and then scaling it is your own problem. This is like we run the service. So we do the support, we do the operations, we run everything. Yeah. Uh, so before you'd have to scale to your largest customer, now we have to scale to every customer that's on the planet, wow. uh, which is a different way of thinking uh, yeah. and different technical challenges, but really exciting. Wicked. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, in fact, I was just showing my age then. I said the word <laughs> wicked. You know, so, uh, <laughs> I need to grow up. I think, I think that was after me. <laughs> um, so I'm curious around the technology challenges then around dealing with that number. I mean, that is eye-watering. How do you manage that? What does that look like in terms of architecture? Yeah, I mean, so not only do we have to do those requests, uh, the other challenge we have is we have to do four nines. I think that works out, was it? 40 seconds a month or something ridiculous, right, <laughs> of downtime. Wow. Uh, so we're running at four, uh, at four nines, so it has to have huge amounts of redundancy. Uh, and we, we use a whole bunch of different technologies. So we use things like uh, multiple CDN layers, and we load balance CDNs, and we load balance DNS as well. So that if one fails, then the other one can take over. We wow. load balance the edge CDN, so we use like an Akamai and CloudFront load balance, so you can get the best route to your device uh, right. on the fly. Uh, mid-tier CDN, so if anything goes wrong with that, then we've got a mid-tier and it doesn't, and we can serve from stale if the origin goes down. Our origin servers are on uh, Amazon, so we're an AWS uh, kind of company. Uh, and we basically scale uh, using uh, automatic load balancing, so auto load balancing. Uh, yeah. So we load balance on the fly. But what we found is that it's best not to rely on that. That what what we do is we like to predict traffic patterns, right? And we ramp up servers up and down throughout the day, so we can go from uh, I don't know, like ten in the <laughs> four in the morning, to a couple of thousand uh, certain points in the day. Right. And we run. If you look at the sort of uh, the pattern, it, would look, it looks kind of it's all over the place, right? It's like lots of peaks and troughs uh, of the number of servers that we're running. Yeah. Uh, so we do predict every ad when we had customers when it's coming to Black Friday. We predict what's going to be put it there, and if we get it wrong, then auto scaling comes in. All right, okay. Uh, the auto scaling. I'm not a, an AWS engineer myself, but I guess that's something that comes out comes through that kind of cloud service. As yeah. It yeah, yeah. I mean, in the old world, when you are uh, on premise. You, and you would say a retailer, which are very lumpy, right? So most of the business is done at the last end of the year. You would go out and you'd go, right, this year we might need 500 servers, sir, right? You'd have to buy 500 servers and you'd stick them in your data center, probably two data centers, and they would just stay there. And you were paying for them, feeding, watering them, et cetera. And then hope they're going to work when it comes to the, the end of the year. Or you hope you've judged it right and you've got enough. Yeah. It wasn't always the case. Uh, in the new world, you don't need to worry about that. You just go, how many do we need right now? And you just, you know, you basically build the infrastructure to adapt and scale. And it's, it's what's super smart about it is that you actually build self-repairing systems as well. So yeah. you can basically build a server that looks at its health and it thinks it's unhealthy. It takes itself out and puts a new one in. So oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a completely different world. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I guess um, uh, this evolution of this way of doing stuff has kind of happened while you've been kind of, uh, you know, developing this, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. When we first started out, we had auto scaling and we're like, yeah, this is good. We can just leave it auto scaling. Great. Uh, but then you find that, you know, you have uh, issues like 
the ramp up time for a server might not be fast enough. So then you need to do predict, be more predictive and then new bits of technology come along and then you, mm -hmm. uh, and then you get internet sort of weather, <laughs> you know, things go wrong that are outside your control, but you're, you want the service. So you've got to improve it. Yeah. We had a, an edge CDN completely go flat out and disappear on us, which shouldn't happen, but it did. Mm. So we thought, well, we need two. <laughs> we yes. need to load balance it. And yeah, yeah we even had, uh, there was a big DNS attack, I think a couple of, was it a couple of years ago? now three years ago but took out an entire dns and loads of systems were down and then we thought well we need to fix that so how do we how do we load balance or round robin the uh dns so if one goes down we still got another one yeah that's right so there's all sorts of things that you learn as you go along yeah i, I imagine so and predicting that demand as well uh, are you using something like ai or machine learning or uh, is it more of a manual kind of uh, i mean dial? we can't cut We've been in it long enough now to kind of predict it, right? So, yeah. Uh, and we always go, we're always running 20% over capacity yeah. uh, or more. Um, so, we'll look at like la the last Black Friday was enormous and we thought it was going to be huge. So, we went full on into it. We reserved instances, we put loads in. There. And then the best thing to do is scale up quickly and then scale down slowly. Uh, so, right. So you scale up quickly and then just kind of keep dropping off till you reach the right bit. Sure, and the kind of cost model uh, for using this kind of scaling and uh, and uh, and resilience and what have you um, is that something that uh, you, you kind of work on to see if you can kind of save, you know, uh, improve yeah. the bottom line basically. You yeah. Know? So you're running. Uh, it's like server hour, really. I mean, you could. The other thing to look at is serverless as well, which is a completely different discussion. Yeah. Uh, but with a but with a cost model on server per hour, server hour, you, that, that's why you're tuning it, right? So we're constantly tuning the the balance of performance and scale against the, the cost. And you can do things like, you know, with uh, providers like Amazon, and I don't know about the other guys, but you can reserve instances which are, you know, reserving capacity is better and cheaper yes. than, than doing it on the fly, that kind of thing. I see what you mean. So you kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the questions that came up is that if, uh, you know, you know, you're going to have a huge demand and you think, oh, well, it's going to leave that to the last minute. You're not always guaranteed that, I guess, you know, because maybe the capacity is already used. And, uh, and uh, I mean, yeah, we always, <laughs> we so every peak, we have uh, our ops guys have a whole checklist of things that they go through, such as headroom of server capacity with Amazon, uh, you know, like checking the auto scaling rules. It's, it's just a bunch of things, right? It's just, yeah. it's just encoded into the the operational team. Yeah. Um, but what's really, 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 really interesting, I think, is that we had a decent Black Friday on, was it 2018? Was it 2019? And then 2020 when COVID hit, right? Uh, no one knew what was going to happen. And I think it was around end of March upwards, this traffic went huge because everyone could only, you could only shop online. Mm. So the traffic was basically a Black Friday every day. That was what we got from our customers. It's a Black Friday every day. Bearing in mind that we didn't even do anything, right? We didn't go online, go, well, we, you know, this COVID thing's happened. Who knows what's going to happen, right? You can't go, yeah, we're going to ramp up the servers. Yeah. Uh, and the system just took it, you know, it, it just basically took it. And then as we've seen the things going, oh, we could adjust a little bit the, on, the, on the rules and the patterns, and it just worked. And we were running a Black Friday every day, and our customers didn't notice anything. No one knew that it, the tra traffic volumes we've got yet. We were having enormous traffic volumes. Brilliant. I love this. And the development of uh, of, of this uh, architecture you've got now, um, I imagine 
I mean, how did it start out? Was it like a big monolith that you had uh, on some servers that you, or has it always been a, a cloud-based? No, uh, it, we we developed it from the cloud from the start. I mean, the company at the beginning were building. We were we had this product called interactive merchandising, and what it did it allowed you to take assets like video and images, and then make them uh, shoppable. Basically, you could add hotspots to it, reuse all of these uh, bits of media, and build really nice experiences. We we're very canvas based though. So this was back in the, back in a while, even had flash in there. So wow. <laughs> that was way back, right? Yeah, uh, and it was highly successful because it was like kind of a, a really quick, easy way of content managing things before, uh, before there were so many channels and devices. Yeah. Uh, and then when we went to do this new thing, which was dynamic media, uh, there was an existing supplier out there that owned something like don't really want to say who they are, but they owned about 80, 90% of that market share. Right. They already had four nines and they were already doing huge scale. So we had to, uh, so I think we had to design something that was just as good in terms of performance right. uh, and was just as good as in terms of the SLA. Uh, even though we were a tiny company at that point, uh, I think we started out and I said to the guys, we need to think big. You know, we need to think really, really, really big on this. I want to be able to serve billions of records a day. Even though that I knew, actually, in the first <laughs> first iteration, we're probably lucky to do ten. You know, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so we had. To, so we started from that concept from day one. Like, how do we do it? And we build it. We built it in AWS. We built it with auto scaling day one. We built it using uh, multiple availability zones, which are like different data centers, like three. Yeah. So if one data center went down, you've got two others. Uh, we built it with all of these things in mind from day one, uh, making sure we didn't have any stateful kind of databases in the middle tier so that you had to scale those as well. Uh, yeah, backed it off into things like S3, which has a massive number of nines of uh, resilience. Mm. So, and then we did a huge amount of volume testing and all the other stuff, right? But it was pretty much cloud native from day one yeah. and built to scale day one. But we only had to run like a handful of servers at the beginning. Mm. And that, that's the great thing about if you get it right, you use cloud tech right, and you have the right mindset, you can start off very small and get to really, really big without having to actually have all the costs up front. Yeah, that's great. I, I, you remind, it reminded me of the film uh, Field of Dreams, you know, build it and they would oh, <laughs> definitely have that kind of thing. Uh. A bit like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Build it and they'll come. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And um, that's great to kind of hear about your company. Let's, let's come on to yourself for a second. So what's your passion? What's the thing that really kind of makes you jump out of bed in the morning and go, woohoo, bring it on? <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about this question for a while. I think what I really get passionate about is solving uh, difficult problems that are real difficult problems for businesses, not just like a hypothetical, I wonder if you could do that. Yeah, you know, it's like work work with customers, and you're constantly seeing patterns and problems, and working towards well, how can you solve them? Some of them are big industri industrial kind of industry problems, and some of them are a bit more isolated, maybe into the into a particular area. But it's that you know, like working to solve those problems in a new way using new technology, but not on your but not on my own, right? I like to be working with you know, my team and, and the people that are also very passionate about it, right? That mm. doesn't have to be even my team. It could be the customer as well. It's just having those passionate people all focused on like one problem and trying to solve it. And then when you do solve it and you do come out the back of it, there's this kind of excitement about it, right? That you kind of got there. Yes. And I, can, I think that's what gets me out of bed. It's doing the problem solving piece 
solving, you know, creating, creating these solutions, but also doing it with uh, with real people and teams. You know? Yes, that's right. I guess that's the kind of thing I miss a little bit from uh, the COVID and working at home is is that real excitement interaction you get on the whiteboard with yes, with yeah. the rest of the team, right? And you kind of like you just get that mind meld moments where you kind of start drawing things out. Yeah. And how have you solved that, actually? Because this is a common theme that keeps coming up for me. I, uh, I've i mentioned it many times. I'm going to mention it again, which is, you know, I think whiteboard should be everywhere, you know, um, where we <laughs> just kind of like concentrate on. They're, they're like a magnet for thinking and ideas and discussions. Have you solved that at all? Uh, working? Um, we, it is tricky. Uh, I, we've got a bunch of that. I think I showed you earlier. Uh, there are things like I have a tablet, which is a screen that I can draw on and we can share ideas that way. Um you know, the guys use Muriel, but it's really, some things are really tricky. And what you're going to understand is that not everybody's the same. I've got uh, an eye problem. I'm actually partially sighted, registered disabled. And I have problems sometimes. I have to do a lot of zooming up and down. Uh, and then when you get guys going, yeah, we've got this Muriel thing, or we've got this, you know, whatever, choose your platform thing. It gets really difficult because I've probably zoomed in three or four different layers and things are moving around. You can't work with it. So that's a real challenge. Uh, but the uh, the whiteboarding uh, tech that I've got, the physical tech that I've got, seems to help with that. And actually, but it's still very, it's much better at broadcasting ideas. It's it's not very good interactive. You'll find, I think, even with people who don't have the same problems I have, you'll get uh, you know some sort of interactive whiteboarding, and you'll end up with most people sitting back and one person driving it and, tell, and everyone telling them what to do. So I think it's a real challenge. I think that's one of my, one of my things that I was going to say earlier, later, which is one of the things I really love to see is much more innovation into, you know, collaborative technologies and not just being stuck staring at a Zoom screen, yes. uh, you know, and then you know, getting that kind of burnout, zone out thing with Zoom. Yes. Uh, and, it, and it's a real challenge. I met up with my CEO uh, a couple of days ago, and I would say that in two hours, we did the equivalent amount of work that would have took us two weeks on Zoom. Wow. Just being together, yeah. working on a whiteboard. So it's it's a re- it is a real challenge. It's yeah. really tricky. It's um uh, we kind of mentioned this before on, on previous podcasts. But, you know, you got like one dimensional communication, two dimensional. You know, uh, you know, uh, emails and stuff. Three dimensional ones. Uh, you know, um, uh, where you're actually in the room. You know, and then it kind of gets better and better. Uh, but yeah, I think the the quality of communication when you're actually in the room with people, the mannerisms, the the, the other 80% of communication that people have, you know, you can just tell straight away where somebody, what somebody thinks of your idea, you know, is that, yeah. is that uh, I think you're talking absolute rubbish slouch, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah. If you think about it in our profession, it's uh, especially when you get into architectural level, it's a lot about abstraction, right? Everything that we do is about abstraction and to communicate abstraction is really, really hard through voice medium, right? It's just really hard. We can come out with analogies, but people can kind of get a bit missed on that. But it's like the abstraction tends to be some sort of model that you draw and you need to see it. And real abstraction uh, works well in collaboration if all of you are kind of working with that and, and kind of transforming it on the fly and yeah. bouncing those ideas off. And it's just really, really hard, tricky uh, in digital media, I think. So, yes, but I'm hoping that'll change. I mean, maybe we'll all be sat there with VR sort of headsets on, interacting in a virtual world. Who knows? That's right. Um, you've reminded me of another film. Actually, there's a film theme going on here. Uh, <laughs> what's it? The Minority Report. You know, when he's got yeah. that screen. You know, uh, it's that. It, it, there's, there's another kind of level of detail and, and interaction. You know. Um, 
yeah so let's let's see hopefully that technology will kind of arrive soon um i've got a note here around uh, the challenges for tech in the uk uh, you, uh you know tech companies within the uk are really kind of struggling in in a number of areas do you, do you have any kind of um uh, comments around that yeah uh, there's, a, there's a number of things uh i think one of the things we talked about previously was the that in some respects, uh, we don't think big enough when we come to being UK tech companies. So, and I don't mean that no one has any ambition at all. I think uh, like we are full of amazing technology in the UK. You know, the UK was like kind of the birth, and the Northeast, where I come from, was the kind of birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, right? There was some massive innovations, you know, and we drove a huge amount of change across the world. And we need to have that kind of mindset again, I think. I think a lot of the times that we've got some amazing technology, you know, and in all sorts of sectors, not just financial services, which everyone kind of thinks, or that you know, London's financial services, it's across all technology spans, right? We have this amazing tech, but I think sometimes we fall down and it's not necessarily even the technologists themselves, but we kind of fall down because we just think, oh, well, it's UK, you know, that, you know they don't, we don't think big enough. Mm. Instead of thinking that, you know, we having limits, you need to think about, you know, you, it's possible to become the next kind of Google yes. or the next Facebook, right? And until we have that shift in a mindset, it's going to be really tricky for us. Mm. And I think, uh, and it, and it's across the whole ecosystem. It's across from, I think, from investors into uh, some of the uh, kind of other domains outside of business and how, you know, the government even, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but we have these amazing technologies and we have these amazing companies. And if we thought about them in the right way, it could be huge, right? And then drive huge amounts of value in, into the whole country. I think that's one one thing for me. I'm, I'm kind of passionate about that, that, you know, we've got this source of incredible talent in, in such a small country in, in some respects. Uh, and all all we need is for everyone to just think bigger. And we and we all have to take that responsibility to do that yeah. and stop bringing out, I think maybe it's a British thing, right? We're always kind of bringing ourselves down a bit, right? Exactly. We're always I'm very kind of you. like apologizing, you know? And we have Sorry. to stop apologizing. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we have to stop it. We have to be much more, you know, we can be more challenging. We have fantastic people and fantastic technology. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Um, I, I, I'm very passionate about the UK as well. It's given me a lot, and uh, I, you know, I, I want the best for it. But it doesn't. It always seems to be self-deprecating. And, and again, yeah. is that a, a cultural thing? Um, and this is why I sometimes like hanging around with people in, uh, you know, California in the US, and they just have a, do you know what? You know, they think big, they do big, and they just kind of go for it. And, uh, and and some of it seems to stick, you know. Yeah, there is definitely a mindset change between the t the two nations, right? Uh, if you if you're very British, <laughs> like being self-deprecating, and you're in a you know in many cells uh, thing, uh, things in, in the in the US, and you go yeah, and you kind of go, uh, we'd like to know what you think about this, right? We think this is really good. What do you think? You know, that's the kind of yes. attitude, right? Like it, we we have to do in the UK generally. Uh, they'll go well. They would question, go well. Why is he asking that? Isn't it? Isn't it good enough? You know I mean? so, <laughs> yes. so you have to be the other way around. You have to go. This is awesome. If you're not thinking about this, then you know yeah. you've lost out. I mean, uh, you you're not, if you don't know about this technology, then you know you're you're you just don't know where you're at. <laughs> it's that kind of attitude, right? So you have to be really out there that this is awesome bit of technology. It's that kind of thing. Uh, whereas if, if, an, if a British, I would say if a British guy did that in front of lots of other British people, they'll look and go, what the hell is this guy on? 
You know, yeah. it's that kind of, we've, we've heard all the stories. I've been in an American company, an agency where, you know, the guys come over from the leadership team, the UK, and they're very kind of passionate and bold. And, you know, they expect everyone to clap and we're all like looking around at each other, you know, and it's, so there is a little bit of a difference there. And, it, and I think we need to take some of that from the US. Yes, I totally agree. I think agree. we need, to, uh, it's, so it's, it's about being bold, right? It's about going, look, we are, we are good. We do own this. Yeah. And we are very good at what we do and be bold about it. And I think that's, I think if, if you think small, you'll be small kind of thing. Yes, I, I totally agree. I, I think uh, the younger, I, I'm showing my age now, the younger, <laughs> okay, they, they, they seem to be very, they, the yearning for this kind of stuff, you know, they want it, you know, they want that kind of uh, bit, uh, bit out there, uh, a bit different. And uh, so I, I think, you know, given the opportunity, people will engrave, it's, it's the kind of leadership in place at the moment. There's this, um, I, I don't know if this is the right word, but there's an over-professionalism, you know, and, and, yeah. and understated. And I don't think that actually helps at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we're doing here in IT Labs is we're setting up a temple of failure, uh, you know, like the Church of Failure. I can't remember the name of the company that has done this, but it's to, it's to kind of start celebrating when people have tried stuff and it hasn't worked. Yeah. Learn, you know, kind of thing. And it's, it's the only way you it's the only way you can innovate. Uh, you know, if if you if you're not if you have a blame the opposite the, the opposite that's like a blame culture, right? Yes. If you have a blame oriented culture, you are screwed. There is just no way you're going to innovate because everyone's covering themselves, right? Yes. Um, but if if you can you know if you can fail and you allow people to fail as fast as they can, yeah. then you're going to constantly learn. You're going to constantly improve, and you'll come out with better ideas, better innovations, and you'll grow, right? But if yeah. if you're constantly looking, you know, if you if you're stuck in that unfortunate IT organization where it's always your fault, uh, who was it that did it this time? Yeah. Then there is just no way on this planet that you, they're going to. Yeah. innovate because why would you why would you stick your neck out if you're going to get your head cut off yes i i have bitter experience of that myself you know we all, i think we all probably have <laughs> yeah, the parapet and then you think you know what i'm not doing that again you know? <laughs> <laughs> um and coming on to your leadership then john uh, what what kind of leader are you what's worked for you and what hasn't worked for you in the past yeah so i i you know like when you're in an interview situation and you get asked what's your leadership style right I would, I would argue that many people would say firm but fair because you're kind of like going for it, right? It's like, oh, well, I could be firm, but I'm fair as well. Yeah. Uh, actually, one of the things I did learn, one of the best models I ever learned in uh, university on my MBA that I did was this thing called situational leadership, which was you have four styles of leadership, right? You have your directive style, right, which is kind of <laughs> you know, like sort of really telling people what to do yeah. uh you have a selling style which is kind of like look guys this is really important you know the reason why this is important is x y and z right and you're kind of selling the idea to them right uh there's the collaborative style which many of us would like to i, I think i actually probably fall in that one as my best yeah, that i feel most comfortable idea. with where yeah. you like to kind of work with people and kind of you know, bounce ideas off everybody and then work together to, to get a solution. Yeah. And then there's the kind of uh, delegation style, which is quite hard to do for, for many technologists because we like to like get in there and dabble. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about trusting the team just to get on with it, let them own it. It's not walking away. Delegation is not about, right, you get on with that, I'll see you later. And if you screw up, I'm going to get it. It's slightly different. It's about, in, you know, like empowering the team to do, make their own decisions uh to do their own thing 
but also provide direction and guidance and be there and support them, take out blockers. So I guess there's the kind of servant leadership thing that you might have heard. So that cuts a bit more in that area of things. And those four styles are important all of the time. Mm. And I think and it's situ the situation is often about the team itself. So if it's like, there's a, there's a whole kind of research on this, but some of the facts are, if you're at the beginning of a team and you're kind of that forming sort of stage, um, everyone's a bit unsure about themselves and maybe they're a bit unsure about the leader. So you have to kind of give them direction and say, guys, this is what we need to do. We need to fix this thing and we need to move on to that. And they're like, oh, great. And as they go through that, they gain confidence. The team gain confidence, right? Because they're achieving. And that's the trick about being a leader with directive, not just tell people what to do, mm. but to reinforce the goals and show them success. So they yeah. get confident. And then they reach that kind of thing of, well, we, we know what we're doing now, but I'm not too sure whether he does, right? Whether yeah. he's doing the right things, right? So that's where you get into the selling, right? So you say, look, you have to go into that more selling mode of, we need to do these things, and this is the reason why. Uh, and then you're kind of getting a little bit more trust about each other. So the collaboration works, right? Because you don't want to be sold to, and you don't want to be told what to do. You kind of want to work together to, to solve the problem. Uh, and then there's the, the bit where, you know, you mature once you get through that stage. You kind of look, look, I know where you're coming from. Just let us get on with it, you know, from the team perspective. And the, and the leader should go trust the team enough to kind of get on with it and just make sure that they go in the direction that you want them to go in. And I think many times when I've seen in my own experience and I've seen teams fail, I, rather, than, I, rather than blame the team, you need to kind of look at yourself yeah. and, and reflect on it. And, I, and many times I reflect to thinking, you know what, you know, maybe they needed a lot more direction then because actually the team was pretty new. We had new people in the team and they're probably further down that kind of stage than, than where I thought they were perhaps. Uh, and that's why I'm having these problems. It's kind of understanding that and taking responsibility yourself as a leader uh, and adjusting your style and the way that you work to work with the, what the team need. That's right. And I guess um, it's having that, you know, there's listening to what's being said, but also listening to what where the team is emotionally and uh, and, and, and confident. You, you mentioned something very interesting there, the confidence, because confidence is a, a really interesting um thing that can slip away very quickly and it's quite hard to kind of develop and we obviously have it as individuals but also as a kind of group um uh i mean what's the kind of things that you do how do you kind of help the team develop that kind of confidence it, how does that work yeah I, I think it's about creating goals that are achievable and helping them helping the team achieve those goals right if you keep giving that i mean yeah we have all these stretch targets and all these things we've heard of before with okrs and all that which is all fine and good but you know things need the more especially at the beginning the more the team can achieve the more confidence they get and this kind of i mean this was the kind of the example i had when i started out in uh in the in ampliance when it was 10 cms right young company uh, team was all over the place at the start, right? We had contractors to try and help build some stuff. I came into it late. Uh, project was a bit late at the time that they were working on. Uh, everyone didn't really know what was happening. You know, and there was real no confidence around, we can't do, you know, I remember having to let some contractors go because that's the other thing about leadership, right? You've got to kind of go, well, if they're not going to work out, you have to make some tough decisions sometimes, right? And especially if you've got if you're paying for people as contractors, or or you've just got staff that are just not working out. Uh, and I, I remember like loads of 
discussions around, well, I don't know what we're going to do now. There was just like complete lack of confidence. So just uh, if you work in kind of the agile method, which is the bit that I favor, mm-hmm. uh, and do scrum, you can create small sprints and every sprint make it attainable. And you deliver some working software at the end, all of a sudden the team changes and go, wow, yeah, we can do this. Uh, and, you know, and it's like, if I can do this, I can do the next one, I can do the next one. And then they just gain confidence because as you start achieving things yeah. and as you start developing things and you start seeing the success, um, you gain confidence, right? I mean, that's, I mean, it's what it's the essence of being a developer is that whole creation and then seeing it out there and people using it, right? That's yes. the thing that, that really gets you going as a developer. And it's the same for the team. And I think that's what it's about. It's, if you're constantly on a team saying, oh, you filled this time, uh, deadline and you haven't done this, it's not the thing that that we wanted, you got that wrong and blah, you know, we've been there, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you're on death marches to try and deliver at the end of a thing. Yeah. The, the, the energy's down, the confidence is down, resilience is down and, and nothing happens. Mm, yeah. But if you can kind of just keep, uh, you know, the, the right cadence in terms of the sprints and keep being successful, then the energy level goes up and people's confidence get up and they're ready to kind of move into slightly different stages. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I, I love the idea of building confidence. So, John, I've got a note here from previous conversations uh, offline that we uh, you mentioned something about it's not about being busy, it's about getting things finished, closing those arcs. Yeah, so one of the key things, and I've already been into this with the whole agile lean thing, one of the methodologies or one of the principles about lean is around work in progress, right? So uh, it's really counterintuitive, but if you have a, say you've got a team of five people and you've got uh, you've got three things you want to do, throwing those three things into that, that small team of five people is not going to get any faster than doing one at a time. In fact, it goes a, a lot slower it's much better to keep the team focused on one thing at a time. And even if, and I've seen this so many times when you have uh, product owners that may be new to product development, where they've got a team and maybe they've got more front-end developers and back-end developers or vice versa, and they've finished off one part of that, and they think, well, I'll just do something else now and we'll start that uh, to kind of, you know, because it'll make it go faster in the long run. It just doesn't because it just, it's just too it's too dispersed because yeah. it, it affects everything, right? It's the communication between all the team members because they're like they're not all in the same level, they're not all doing the same thing. Uh, it affects things like QA and testing because now you've got double the things to do and you can't get that throughput correctly. Uh, it just doesn't work. So you're much better focusing as a team on completing things. Don't mm. keep your team members busy. Don't keep them busy. Get it done. <laughs> Jeremy, yeah. just get it done. Get it out there, even if they're doing. Uh, especially if you're using a multidisciplinary team, the whole point is self-organizing. You know, get them all to work together to finish that thing that needs to get done. Uh, don't start something new because the more that you start pushing in and the more threads you're pushing that team, the slower it gets, right? The thing that you want, you'll end up like delaying some of the key pieces of functionality by weeks just because you've tried to get more stuff done. Yes. Uh, and it just doesn't matter. I, I don't know how many times. I don't know how many times I reiterate that. I think there are people in my team who are sick of hearing me saying those words. Yeah. Uh, but it happens, and it, I've done it myself. Right? I'm, we're all. We all think if we do things and lots of things in parallel, it'll get done faster. In these scenarios, it, it it never does, and it goes into lean principles. Yeah, that's right. It reminds me of a uh, Maxwell. There's a series of curves, the Maxwell curves, around the number of projects that you're working on. 
and uh, and uh, I find it interesting. You know, I think three projects, forty percent of your time is spent context switching. You know. Yes, and that's that's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, in the lean sort of methodology, one of the key things is work in pro- progress and then context switching. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you know the other one's about re- reducing waste, yeah. <laughs> which which is uh, yeah the other thing you kind of kind of do with the teams is looking at well what, what did we not actually do very well this time, yeah. uh, but it's getting those things right right. So agile is great at like that kind of you know getting the teams to work together and collaborate and and uh, getting uh, work you know workable software at the end of it, working with customers, people on process, all of those great things. But I really like uh, putting the lean methodology on top of it as well, mm. which is things like, uh, you know, like work in progress, you know, understanding context switching and tool, you know, with different tools. Yeah. Uh, and also the MVP, <laughs> which <laughs> there's lots of debate about. But that just this goes back to our other kind of discussion about if you do an MVP and you have that mindset and MVP iterate, you get stuff out much more quickly. It might not be the thing you want at the end, but you get it out there. And then you get in front of customers and you learn what they really want. Yes. Right. Uh, so I kind of changed my mindset from my from uh, when I was on my degree to where I am today. Because I trained as a software engineer, which meant that everything was about methodologies. And you basically took uh, development as an engineering, pure engineering principle, right? And I think it's different. I think that uh, software development is more of a creative process. And actually, as you go through development, what you're doing is learning, right? So you can do, you have to do a bit of architectural stuff up front because you still have to have a, a direction and a framework to work from. But ultimately, as you iterate, you learn things. I don't, I'd say a lot to my team that uh, I don't know how we're going to do that yet, but we will when we get there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> because in three, you know, like, I don't know, say four or five sprints time, everybody's learned things that they didn't know before. Right, we're further down the road, uh, and we've probably saw, we've hit some problems and roadblocks along the way, as you do. <laughs> I didn't know it worked like that, uh, <laughs> and you yeah. solve them. You get there. You understand the problem more. You understand the problem more in the context. You understand more the problem space. You understand more about how you built things, and you can make better decisions about how you move forward from it. Right. So you're constantly learning, and I think if you have that approach. Then it's much better than going. You know what? I know what I know. How this project's going to be eighteen months time. It's going to look like this. Yeah, because it never great. does. Then I've got this question around the testing. How do you kind of stress test the, the, this code that's been delivered? Do you have a kind of process for making sure that it is resilient and it is going to be able to handle the numbers? Yeah, I mean we have a. Yeah, we have dedicated QA teams within the within the company, uh, and they got you know, they build all sorts of stress testing and load testing, and you know, and lots of ways of trying out those APIs to make sure they perform. Uh, they don't just get rolled out. <laughs> There's a huge yeah. amount of additional testing going on in in the whole in the whole process, uh, and we have N- so the, we start from NFR, so the non-functional requirements, uh, and that might be uh, something like a uh, like 30, 30 milliseconds for each re- request. And then we'll, we'll hammer, the, hammer the APIs to make sure that they're always consistently at 30 milliseconds. And if they're not, then we'll kind of like sort of sharpen the pencils, go back to it <laughs> and, see, yeah. and see, what's, see what's going on. Yes, that's but, it, but the key thing is, I think when you're developing software for performance, you've got to kind of start at the beginning. You've got to kind of set those NFRs. It's like a thinking big thing I was saying before. You've got to set the NFRs. You've got to set the boundaries and the objectives right from the beginning. Don't just build it and then hope and then go, does it work at this speed? 
It's yes. like going, how do you get it to work at that speed? And then yeah. that's what I do with the guys is go, look, I want it to work at this speed. Yeah. Make it work at that. I think I asked for 25 milliseconds and they couldn't do it. And so end up at 30, but that's not bad. You should have done a Steve Jobs uh, reality distortion field on them, you know? I believe in you, you know? And they're, they're <laughs> then, you know? But, but when you set that challenge, then it sets the mind, it puts the mind in the yeah. right place, right? And they'll try all sorts of things out and let the team do the work. Don't tell them what to do. Just say, like, this is the guy, you know, we need to get it to this and, it, and we need to be able to do it uh, billions of times in a day. How do we do that? How do we do that? Yeah, and let them at it. And it, the problem with doing doing that development can be that it can take longer because you know it's not just making it work. Yeah, we've returned a string. Fine, let's move <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, it's right. actually you know there's a lot to it to make sure that works right, considering all the different aspects of it. Sure. And you mentioned earlier on around the kind of resilience. You've you've obviously kind of created a, this beautiful resilient system that can uh, has redundancy and ability to kind of switch. So, how do you test that? Do you kind of like pull the plug sometimes on something and go, do you know what? Let's see what happens. You know, and everybody stands yeah. around with their fingers crossed. <laughs> well, we don't do it in the live system, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but we we have a you know we obviously have a duplicate uh, QA system. And uh, and those those guys do that, right? They literally just have the setup, and we'll, you know, we'll stop the Amazon services and see what happens. Yeah. See if it serves, you know, see if it still works and serves from stale. Yeah. Uh, pull out a CDN, you know, uh, pull out the mid tier, uh, and, and see if it works. And, and honestly, the these things do actually happen as well. Uh, not every day, but they they happen. Mm. You know, we, you know. Uh, can't say the fr- it's enough for me to remember that something's yes. that right there'll be an edge cdn will kind of drop out in a region like germany or i don't know it could be the uk or a particular state or a particular city uh just some peering relationship has stopped working with the cdn and it just stops yeah. and the traffic automatically routes to the other cdn right for That's that area yeah, um, so it happens all the time so john as we come towards the end of our time together uh, I've got some really interesting, fun questions for you. Um, sure. What advice would you give to aspiring leaders out there? Say I was going to become a, a tech leader. Uh, what advice would you give me to to maybe avoid some of the mistakes or make it easy and fun? Yeah, uh, I think the, some of the things I've learned, if I, was, if I was going to do this again, or if I was going to move into an elite position, I think this, some of the things that, uh, that I've learned are things like uh, have a product team rather than a project team. Uh, you know, and the reason a product team is a multidisciplinary. So you have different types of developers, all the skills you need to do one thing. Yeah. Uh, you have a product owner, so the team makes sure that it's close to, to the customer. Uh, and you've got your QA in there as well. So you haven't got, you've not created this uh, dependency in, in the kind of development flow. And, you know, you've got your creatives and, and, and DevOps. And so you basically have this self-organized team but don't make it too big either <laughs> keep yeah. it to keep it to i don't know three to nine type people a pizza sure. team i think you call it right uh, so that's the first thing is make sure you've kind of got the right size team and you've got the right people in the team and you've got the right ethos of the team uh obviously stick to agile stick to lean uh i've always i think one of the first things you should do when you're in the team is or starting a team is to focus on the values so I've got one core value that has lived all the way through the last 10 years of my team, which is the best idea wins. Oh, nice. uh, 
And it's a great thing because it's about, it doesn't matter whether you're a graduate, whether you're a senior developer, uh, your idea is worth as much as everybody else's. Uh, and everybody has to defend their idea, right? Mm. So it means that you always, hopefully you get the best idea, right? So you get the best innovation and everyone feels uh, like they can collaborate on those things. And I think having the right values at the beginning is crucially important. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I do not go anywhere near any form of blame, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of the, the piece of advice I give to one of the guys in my team who is uh, growing into a, a fantastic leader is to say that I say to him that everything is my fault, right? I have, as a CTO, I have all the power to decide who's in what team, what work we do, how we do it. Like everything's there. I can't do it all, right? Uh, so I, what I have to do is ask other people to do those pieces for me. Mm. but it's still my responsibility. And I think if you have that and allow people to feel confident that they can make mistakes, they can fail on things and they can try things out, uh, it just built, and and, they, and then they can have the best ideas and try them out. It just helps build amazing teams and amazing confidence, right? Uh, and again, I think the other thing that I, I think there are three, so the other stuff thing is, I think there are three inflection points in people's careers as a dev uh, in technology right. and the first one is when you step from being a developer to a team lead and then you've got to kind of step up and not think just about your code but think about everybody else's right understand the dynamics of the team you've got to understand uh what the team's trying to uh trying to produce and what the objective is and you know take responsibility for that i think the next one is uh there's this change where you step much further away from the code. You're probably spending more time, more time, less time doing code than you are doing anything else. And you end up going down two branches. You might go down both at one point, which is you're going down an architect route, which you have this big, much more strategy, holistic view. Uh, you know, you have to, you might be spanning across multiple projects, but you still got less on the people side, although you still need to be able to manage teams, probably still need to have the right code, but it's, it's a different view or you're going on to managing people. Mm. Uh, but but you're going to step away from the code. And then I think the final one, which I found the hardest, was moving from that to being uh, a CTO if you're growing into it and you haven't kind of dropped into it. Uh, because I think then you you have to have more than just the tech. To be a great CTO, I think you need to have like a lot more in terms of business, yeah. a lot more in terms of understanding people. Uh, I, one of the things I did was an MBA, which really helped me that round me out as a character and as a, as an individual and allow me to step back and look at things at different viewpoints, look at things from different business angles, uh, and then, you know, and come up with much more creative solutions. So, yeah, yeah I think, yeah, I think that's good. There's something around that you mentioned, uh, universities, uh, there's a gap between what universities are delivering and what the kind of industry needs. It kind of speaks to that a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think that most technical universities or most universities that do technology are training people to only be developers. You know, I, I've not, there may be some out there that are not doing that and please contact me if there are, <laughs> but the most of the ones that I see, nearly everyone's that I talk to, they train people to be really developers and then they'll use like, Oh, well, you're not going to be the best developer, so maybe you can be a business computing. You know, they come out with all these terms, but ultimately it's about being a developer. Uh, it's like that's the goal. And actually, our, in, our industry now has completely changed, right? There are there are so many different skills that are, are so valuable, right? Uh, QA, there are some QA roles which are uh, 
much more in the development side than they are on the testing side, right? Like automated testing. As a QA person, you need to really understand the business and what you're testing for. You can't just go, it doesn't work. You have to say, well, it doesn't work in what context? And, you know, and the, my, I find my QA guys know more about the product than the developers do because they, they get to use it all the time and do lots of stuff with it. And right. then like things like business analysis and product owners, there are just so many other skill sets out there that we need in our industry that are just not there, right? Uh, I end up having to go to uh, other countries to try and draw on those skills because we don't train QA people in this country. Mm. We they, People tend to fall into it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a really interesting point. So what, what do you think about developers having the QA role as well? So they see it from end to end? Yeah, I mean, it's something. I think it's something that we toy with when, you know, like, like I said, if, if we're at the end uh, of, a, of a piece of development of a couple of sprints and uh, some developers are free, they can kind of get involved with the, with the QA aspect of it. But it does take them a little bit of time to switch, right? Because it's just a different way of thinking. Uh, I mean, you could, what tends to happen is the developers will then spend more time doing uh, more automated tests, right? Because that's much more in there kind of where they feel more comfortable, right? So they just define all the scenarios and do even more coverage in terms of the automated testing. Uh, and that's great because it just means that you've got better regression packs. Yeah. Uh, but it's much diff- it's much more difficult. I've worked with some incredible QA people, and even though they can automate, they just have this sense. They, they like wander through the system, and they find that one thing, and they're like little ferrets. Once they find it, they'll kind of get in there and rip it apart. <laughs> I love it. I love that analogy. <laughs> ferrets. Oh, bring on the ferrets. <laughs> the ferrets are lovely creatures, by the way. So. Um, ego. I'm, I'm really kind of curious around what, what books tech leaders have read and how they've had an impact on them. Um, I call these gateway books, you know, things that yeah. really change the direction. What books would you recommend to other leaders? Yeah. So I won't go for a pure techie book. Uh, what I'll go for a book that I, I think is a great book for ideas, innovation. It's called Made to Stick uh, by the Chip Brothers. You can find it. I just, it's just a, a, a great book around what makes an idea sticky. You know, and it gives you a little framework. And it actually, it's, it's really useful. It's one of the big problems we have as technologists, I think, as you get senior, is our job is to take really complicated technical concepts and communicate in a way that anyone can understand, right? And so that's a real challenge. And the other thing is to, if we're really passionate about something, we think this is going to be amazing. I've got this fantastic idea. If we do this, it's going to transform the world. It's no point if you can't explain it to somebody and make it so that it's like kind of a that everyone remembers and understands it. And it's and I think this just gives you a framework to help you understand um, how how to think about an idea and when you're communicating it, are you communicating in the best way that's really going to help mm. you know serve your cause you know yes. and and I think it, I think it's just a, a good way of thinking and it, it's good to not just focus purely on to yeah I've read the best agile book or whatever right it's to stretch your mind in a different direction absolutely and this is one of the great things about books is they're little parcels little gifts you know wisdom yeah. somebody's put their heart soul and i've read yeah i think i've read that about four or five times <laughs> here we go i'm gonna to pretend to be a tech genie okay i'm gonna offer you a wish <laughs> and a wish in your kind of tech space as your tech leadership or your company or your industry what wish would you make 
uh, I think it goes back to the first thing we talked about, which is uh, if I could do anything, if I could have anything, it would be far better collaboration software than uh, than Zoom. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, whether that's uh, a VR type thing that we all feel like we're we're equal and we can all work in the space and we can kind of collaborate in a really rich and uh, more engaging way than staring yeah. at a screen for four or five hours, then that would be it, right? Because uh, I don't know about you, but you know, uh, when you see meetings that are longer than an hour and up to four hours on Zoom and they're, and they're tagged with the thing workshop or something, your heart sinks because you yeah. just think, oh my God, I can't do this. But yes. if, if there was something where you really felt like you could work remotely and you could still engage with people at a, at a more deeper level, I mean, that would be it for me. Brilliant. I'll see what I can do. Okay, I'll work on that for you. It's on, it. on the top of my on the top of my priority backlog. Okay. Uh, <laughs> as we come to the end of the podcast, what key takeaway would you leave for the tech leader women and men out there around uh, what you've learned and what you'd like to kind of part part as a gift to them? Yeah, I think the the key thing for me is the one that's sustained us all the way through the ten years at Ampliance, which was the best idea wins, and that's about you know. Making everybody equal, have it, making ideas equal, and so therefore empowering everybody, you know, to participate and collaborate in innovation. I think, I think uh, all the other values that we have tend to sort of hang off that one thing, which is you know, best idea wins. Doesn't matter who you are, everything's equal. I think I think that's the one thing that's helped us innovate and get to where we are today. Brilliant, love it. Thank you for your time, John. It's been great speaking to you, listening to you and discussing all the kind of subjects. So thank you very much. Thanks. Wow. John shared some super tips from his experiences. I particularly liked his high level explanation of how they architected their solution. One, for dealing with high loads and two, for having resilience. The fact that their system functioned hunky-dory, as we say in the UK, during the start of the COVID-19 super surge in online purchases this was great to hear. How did you describe it? An everyday Black Friday. Don't you love it when a system performs as it should? I can just see them all high-fiving each other in the office as the thing did its thing like a walk in the park. I'm personally curious around how technology leaders create systems like this, ones that can handle super surges and provide a level of resilience when aspects of the system kick the bucket, as they say. So what were your key takeaways? Well, I'm going to tell you mine. Number one, when creating your cultures, your working cultures, see everyone as equal with a voice. This is something that's close to my heart with my values around democracy and the freedom of speech. It's important to have all voices heard. Whenever I've personally made sure that that value of mine is enacted in our work environments and working teams, it's always paid off. Which brings me on to my second key takeaway. Let the best ideas win. Once we've heard all the ideas and everyone's voice, Set up an environment that allows the best ideas to compete and the best one win. And just as a side note, here at IT Labs, that's how we like to roll and it works well for our clients and for ourselves. And thirdly and finally, design systems with a vision of the future in mind from resilience and a level of expected demand perspective. Obviously, some level of pragmatism is required. You don't want to be spending too much time investing too much money in creating systems that may not be needed due to a pivot or a proof of business concept proving wrong. So there you have it. So thank you for your time, John. Best wishes to you and your continuing excellent leadership. And of course, to Ampliance for their Formula One solution that they're providing to the big brands out there.
Keep revving those engines, boys and girls, and knocking it out of the park. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Lab services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.